Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hi, listeners. Brad Kearns hosting and excited to talk to you about a very interesting subject, uh, the often forgotten, misunderstood, disrespected member of the fitness family, and that is the topic of recovery. Oh my gosh, we're so good at paying lip service to recovery. Uh, This dates back for decades when um, I think people first started spewing out the concept of hard, easy, and how important it was to mix up your hard days with your easy days. But it goes so much deeper than that, and we have such a greater understanding now of how the body works and the dynamic process of fitness. But unfortunately, we still seem to be, generally speaking, stuck in a flawed and narrow mindset where we kind of take recovery for granted, and we don't uh, put it in the proper perspective. So I read an article, and um, it kind of got me thinking. It kind of gave me an epiphany. It was very well done. Uh, It was by a guy named Joel Jameson. I got him on the podcast, so please listen to that show. Uh, His website is eightweeksout.com. And I started to put some dots together uh, and uh, got in deep with Mark Sisson and Lindsay Taylor and Brian McAndrew and other people on our team uh, sorting out all the things that we've written about prior, uh, especially the compensation theory in many of the books. We always bring up that term when we're talking about the concept of calories in, calories out, and how flawed that is as a weight loss perspective. And the compensation theory is where um, if you do a hard workout, you end up feeling lazier and eating more food uh, throughout the day as a consequence of the strenuous workout. And if you exercise in a chronic pattern, then the compensation theory really takes hold where you just tend to eat more and get more tired and more lazy uh, because you're trying to fight through this overly stressful workout pattern. So what Joel Jameson put together was uh, zeroing in on the concept of recovery and how that fits into the overall fitness picture. So if you go to 8weeksout.com, that's the number 8weeksout.com, the article's titled, All Pain, No Gain, Why the High-Intensity Training Obsession Has Failed Us All. And then there's a few follow-up posts uh, after that. So read that one first, that's uh, backdated, and then there's a few in front of it, and get all up on this uh, up in this topic. But um, we have a nice post on Mark's Daily Apple on the subject, but I just wanted to give you the the verbal diatribe here to get you inspired and get you rethinking some of this stuff that if you think you respect recovery and you're doing everything right right now because you take a day off once a week or you do uh, an easy week after two hard weeks, uh, this might stop you in your tracks and get you thinking even more deeply and reflecting and reconsidering your approach. Um, The big issue at hand or the uh, breakthrough point here is that we only have a certain amount of energy we are able to expend each day. We have an upper ceiling of energy expenditure. And we push up against that constantly when we're going through this hectic modern life and our type A workaholic rat race tendencies. So this energy is expended in different ways. It could be just a super busy, stressful day at work where you're just putting out 
um, all kinds of cognitive energy, emotional energy. And it could be uh, guys like me who spent a decade of my life waking up every day and just training and sleeping and eating. So it could be putting in that 300 miles a week on the bike and 42 miles running and uh, 10 miles swimming as a typical triathlete might do. And that takes a whole ton of energy. But if you go around and look at these folks, um, we're not doing much beyond that. So if you compare energy expenditure side by side to someone who's going, going, going in a different way, uh, how about a uh, busy working parent uh, driving around town, doing the carpool, getting right on the conference call while fighting through rush hour traffic, working really hard at a job, doing a couple presentations, uh, jumping on a plane for a two-day trip uh, to Portland to go to an important meeting, come back, get the kids right back in your hands because your uh, other partner is now busy doing something else and they might not put in as many weekly miles. Maybe they're trying to do spinning class twice a week if they're lucky, uh, but the total energy expenditure is similar when adjusted, of course, for uh, uh, gender, uh, uh, age, um, and uh, body weight. Uh, so the way this started to get into more prominence lately was a well-publicized study of the Hadza, the modern-day hunter-gatherer band that is located in Tanzania and still living a primitive lifestyle. Um, the study was uh, had a shocking result that we slackers in the modern world, taking our subways and taking our escalators, sitting on our butts, uh, working hard at a job for eight hours, and having these massive uh, conveniences, comforts, and sedentary influences modern life, we burn a similar number of calories, pound for pound, and gender-adjusted, age-adjusted, as our seemingly harder-working, primitive-living counterparts. Uh, the big quote that came out of the study, and you can Google this, uh, just do Hadza Energy Expenditure Study, and you'll come up with PubMed and other uh, side articles about it. Um, the Joel Jameson article that I mentioned uh, references this nicely. Uh, but the important quote was, the similarity in total energy expenditure among Hadza hunter-gatherers and Westerners suggests that even dramatic differences in lifestyle may have a negligible effect on total energy expenditure. So what this does is it blows away the conventional wisdom concept of the additive model of energy expenditure. In the additive model of energy expenditure... You may not heard of that, but this is how your brain thinks right now, most likely. The additive model means that the more uh, calories you burn, the more workouts you do, you're going to burn more energy on a given day. It's very simple. It's very logical. Uh, seems to make complete sense that if you imagine waking up and buzzing around or you go onto an online calculator and it says your basal metabolic energy expenditure is 1,897 calories per day or whatever, and then you think, okay, well, I'm going to go do my spinning class, and I can uh, Google that online too. And the spinning marketing copy, I used to work for them and put this stuff out there, says a 40-minute spinning class burns 663 calories. Isn't that great? That'll help you lose weight and uh, reach all your goals. And so if you envision it on a graph with this upward sloping uh, line where the more calories you burn, the more energy you expend each day. Okay? How about if that was wrong? <laughs> Wouldn't that blow your mind? It blew my mind. And the graphs that are uh, embedded into um, uh, Joel's article, and we'll put those up on the Mark's Daily Apple post too, um, are, are just, you know, you're going to shake your head. Because what we are really operating under is something called the constrained 
model of energy expenditure. That's what I just talked about, is that we have an upper ceiling of energy expenditure limit each day that we often bump up against if we're hard-driving peak performers, type A people, uh, devoted fitness enthusiasts doing our CrossFits or our miles for our endurance efforts, or if we're traveling on jets and giving presentations and working hard in a job or running around after kids and trying to be a multitasker, okay? So in the constrained model of energy expenditure, when we bump up, when we start pushing up to the maximum limit of daily expenditure, the body compensates. And so what happens is at rest and in general terms, we burn fewer calories than we ordinarily would if we didn't do that 6 a.m. morning spin workout, uh, if we weren't rushing around and having such a hectic schedule with uh, the kids or the job. Um, This hit a light bulb in my head, uh, and I've mentioned this on podcasts before uh, when I talk about the compensation theory and the epic example of me back in the day when I was uh, training full-time as a professional triathlete, and part of my daily routine was to get into my car and drive six-tenths of a mile to my mailbox to pick up the mail. Okay, this is a guy who's ridden 84 miles that day or probably at least 25 miles every day on my bike, sometimes 172 miles in a day, uh, you know, and I can't ride my bike another six tenths of a mile or I can't get out and walk and enjoy the evening stars or what have you uh, to go get to the mail. And it was because I was so tired and so lazy from doing all that other exercise that I was basically a blob if I was off my bike out of the water or off the running trails. So I think any elite athlete can relate. That's an extreme example of someone whose energy is dedicated to a very, very narrow application. So it was my workouts, and then I was off, and I was usually uh, horizontal on the couch, in bed. Uh, I've also said this a lot on podcasts, that during that time when I competed as a professional triathlete, um, I was asleep for half of my career. I was asleep for half of my life for a decade, from age 20 to age 30. I slept 10 hours every night religiously. Obviously, it was very important, and I was my top priority was to train, so I didn't have anything uh, disturbing my sleep. And then I took faithfully took a two-hour nap most every day. Uh, and if you know what, if I missed the nap, um, things were off. I didn't perform as well as my at my evening swim workout. So I was very dedicated to that sleep and rest and nap time. So that was the that was the sleep time, and then the awakened hours when I wasn't exercising. Um, I didn't do much. I didn't accomplish much as a human. I wrote a little bit and wrote magazine articles and got my my writing career started that I picked up after I finished racing. Uh, but I generally was not out running around burning a bunch of energy because I simply didn't have any more energy to give. I was devoting and focusing my energy on the workouts by necessity. So because I had the lifestyle circumstances, focus, and discipline to devote almost all of my energy toward my workouts, uh, I was able to perform pretty well in the workouts, recover well, generally speaking, and uh, perform well in the race. Now, here's the part where we get into trouble. When we want to bite off more than we can chew, we want to burn the candle on both ends, we reject or have are not familiar with this constrained model of energy expenditure, and we're just thinking in terms of the additive model and thinking how we can hack our sleep with this great tool and this great podcast where someone's telling you you can shave an hour or two off your sleep 
if you first lay down on a spiky bed or take these supplements or do this meditation or drink this uh, brand of tea. Um, and then we just get thinking in this uh, flawed mindset where we want to uh, hit these athletic goal objectives. Of course, we don't want our career to suffer or be compromised. We also promised the family that we wouldn't compromise quality time with them. So I'm still going to coach soccer, rise up the corporate ladder, and compete with the badasses on the uh, amateur triathlon scene in the age groups where you have these uh, tremendous performers that have optimal lifestyle circumstances are putting up, uh, you know, amazing training numbers and trying to compete with regular, ordinary people who have jobs and families. And it's a tough go because what happens is that the recovery gets compromised. So far, you probably agree with everything and everything makes total sense and it's pretty darn obvious. But here's where I'm going to try to blow your mind and really stop you in your tracks when. I propose that recovery and restoration require energy in and of themselves, okay? So it's not just that you go, go, go until you collapse, but you also have to envision this, uh, this pie, this pie uh, chart of daily energy expenditure and devote a slice to uh, the job, devote a slice to your CrossFit uh, schedule, devote a slice to uh, the family and uh, friends and social time and cleaning the house. And then you also have to devote a slice of this pie to restoration and recovery because the metabolic processes that support recovery actually require energy. Um, not thinking in these terms, not respecting this concept is where we get into trouble, what Joel calls the recovery deficit. Okay, this was reflected really nicely in Joel's article, his contention that our daily energy resources are allocated to three main functions. First, vital biological functions, survival. We prioritize basic daily survival, and we engage in assorted homeostatic mechanisms that support brain and body function and require a substantial amount of energy. These are things like firing your brain neurons to think and form thoughts and and make actions, Uh, digesting food, breathing air. This is our our survival functions, require a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, The next category are workouts and general everyday stress. So everything has to go in this same category, the same pie slice. So whatever energy you wish to allocate to fitness ambitions must compete with your commute, your busy workday, your jet travel, running around with the kids. Uh, Even though we often consider exercise and physical workouts to be a great stress release from the pressures of the office and the sedentary nature of that type of energy expenditure, the cognitive demand rather than the actual physical demand of uh, uh, pedaling the the pedals and and breathing and uh, cranking the, uh, the paddles if you're uh, rowing or whatever, um, they are both forms of stress to the body, okay? So we have to think of those in the same perspective. A great line from Andrew McNaughton, frequent guest on the Primal Endurance podcast, is that uh, midway through his career, he finally figured this out, and it was a great breakthrough. He realized that he had to taper for long airplane flights. We know that Jet travel is tremendously stressful to the body. It spikes cortisol and, and keeps it up there for a while. You can't, you can't help it. Even if you have first-class seat and you uh, t- take a nap or watch a movie and relax, 
um, it's still a stressful event to get on an airplane and travel through time zones. It's a metabolic and a hormonal disruption because uh, we have no genetic experience of traveling through time zones until very recently in our evolutionary history, right? So jet travel is highly stressful. The more time zones you travel, the more stress. And for a while, uh, most athletes are thinking, oh, I'm going to cram in a bunch of training before I get on my plane and fly to Europe because I won't be able to exercise for a long time and I'll be jet lagged and all that stuff. Um, And if you do that, then you go stress, 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 right up to the point where you enter the jet and then you plunge into more stress and the changing of the time zones and it all adds up to crashing and burning by the time the race day (laughs) the gun goes off in the race a week later. So we commonly would go over to Europe to do um, the big races like in Nice, France, and we'd go a week early. So we'd do all this training, all this training, and then exhausted, jump on a plane, get a little bit of physical rest, but get that other form of stress, and then uh, land and be subjected to jet lag for uh, you know an entire week because it does take a while to overcome that and get back into calibration. Uh, I've heard the... Um, uh, adage that it takes about a day per time zone to fully adjust, right? So if you go from continental U.S. over to Europe and you've traveled through uh, six or seven or eight time zones, you're talking about a week to feel, uh, you know, right and correct in whatever the new time zone. Uh, Mark Sisson thinks he can overcome that and uh, adjust earlier uh, by doing intermittent fasting. So that's a really fascinating aspect of helping your body calibrate more quickly to a new time zone. Uh, by giving the digestive system a rest and also uh, exposing yourself to sunlight and getting as quickly as you can onto the time schedule of the place that you've arrived. But it's still stressful even when you do all that. Okay, so tapering for long airplane travel flights. And even if you're not relating to this athletic example of flying over to do a race, I know a lot of people who are busy business travelers uh, will do their big uh, weekend activities knowing that they're going to get on a plane Monday morning and go into uh, uh, three days of busy meetings in snowy Chicago in the middle of winter. So you have this physical fitness binge at home in San Diego in the warm weather, and then you get on a jet and you get the, uh, the jet travel, the time zone travel stress. You get the uh, climate stress of plunging from uh, warmer into a snowy conditions, and then you get the stress of the, uh, the meetings and the peak performance demanded in the business setting. And oops, forgot about number three. Number three on the daily energy resource allocation is recovery and restoration. So we have the vital biological functions, we have workouts and general everyday stress, and then finally, in the recovery and restoration category, stuff like restocking depleted muscle glycogen after your workouts, uh, getting your immune system to work as uh, desired, optimizing your immune function. The immune system works really hard when you're asleep, That's why we get sick if we skimp on optimal hours of sleep. Uh, We've talked about the the sodium-potassium pumps in your brain that get depleted uh, from firing your your brain at a busy day at work. And in a very similar manner to uh, your bicep getting fatigued after you're doing a couple sets of curls, you have to rest the brain to refresh and recalibrate the sodium-potassium pumps because the electrical signaling is compromised when your brain neurons get tired from constant use or uninterrupted use or things like multitasking and the crazy uh, stresses that we subject our brain to these days. So taking a nap, 
taking a break, taking a walk, doing something that doesn't require that uh, intense brain function will help you uh, recalibrate, especially the good night's sleep. Of course, our brains are getting restored and refreshed overnight. From now on, going forward, understand that our body is dispensing energy in these three main categories. You will have the proper respect and appreciation for category number three, recovery and restoration, and knowing that if you want to be a peak performer in the workplace and you want to bill out your 2,000 hours a year at the law firm, then you're not going to be able to go straight through at peak performance brain zone for eight straight hours at the highest level. That's simply not how the brain works. There's a lot of good science suggesting that we're only capable of intense concentration on a single peak performance task for around 20 minutes at a time until we require a break to sustain uh, peak performance. So if you are able to take these frequent breaks, like a one to two minute break every 20 minutes, even to do something simple like look out the window at distant objects and give your eyeballs a break, uh, you will stay in a higher peak performance mode than if you just try to grind away without taking a break. Same with a five to 10 minute break every two hours. Um, The really high cognitive performance jobs uh, requiring intense focus, such as air traffic control and such as dealing cards in Vegas, these employees generally have uh, really interesting work break cycles. Uh, The dealers go, I think it's 40 minutes on and 20 minutes off every single hour. The air traffic controllers uh, have a similar uh, sustained breaks that are happening frequently so that they're never in there too long where they would lose their focus and forget to talk to certain planes or lose track of everything that's going on on the table every second of the time. Okay, so if we can all take that example, not saying everyone has to go 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off, that wouldn't fly very well in a uh, bureaucratic workplace, would it? But some semblance of that where you notice and pay close attention to your cognitive abilities and when you start to see yourself drifting Uh, losing focus, uh, repeating the same lines of something that you're trying to read or edit, or kind of watching your fingers drift over to um, the clicking of the YouTube video rather than staying focused on what you're doing, that's an indication that you need a cognitive break and need to go into uh, category number three mode, recovery and restoration, and constantly be thinking in these terms rather than um, the go, go, go mentality, especially when you're trying to balance Uh, fitness or athletic ambitions, along with all these other things in your life. So you rest for plane flights. And when you have a busy day of three soccer games, you realize that that is going to compromise your ability to put out energy to whatever workout ambition you had uh, during that quick break in the schedule in in the afternoon. Okay, this is uh, trying to prevent what's called recovery debt. And recovery debt occurs when all your energy is going toward one and two, right? You're always going to be prioritizing the vital survival biological functions. And then, of course, you're going to get your butt up and head to the office. You're even able to get your butt up and head to the 6 a.m. CrossFit workout. But if that's where all your energy goes and you've drained your tank, this is where things start to fall apart. This is where you start to incur these long-term dysfunctional health conditions that are so common uh, in the Uh, ancestral health world, people drifting over to this world from extreme pain and suffering, from unsolvable health conditions, chronic fatigue, 
uh, all the things in that category, uh, adrenal dysfunction, thyroid dysfunction, people that are just flat out destroyed because they spent years or even decades uh, only in uh, energy number one and energy number two category mode and just completely disrespecting recovery. So getting back into balance here and realizing that it might not be as fun to uh, take a break as it would be to squeeze in yet another workout, but this is a necessary approach to avoid recovery debt and allow the hard work that you put in on the other areas to pay off. Uh, How about taking a walk around the block during the workday and finding that uh, problems are solved or new ideas are uh, come to mind when you give yourself a little space and a little break between the constant grind of sitting in your office and uh, being absorbed by live chats or people dropping in or the, the stimulation of the screen. Remember that stat that I mentioned at another show that the average knowledge worker in an office switches between 37 different sources of input in a single hour. That's 37 different computer windows if you're sitting in front of a computer. And then another stat from the same resource, I forgot which one, but it's in one of the books, Primal Blueprint, I think. Um, we uh, change our focus every three minutes. Uh, so we work on a different peak cognitive task in the workplace every three minutes. That is not a long period of sustained focus. So multitasking way up there on the list of uh, highly fatiguing and unproductive behaviors. We can't really multitask. Uh, we referenced this study in the new Primal Blueprint. I believe it was out of Stanford where they showed that multitasking is actually an illusion. And what we're doing when we multitask is we're quickly uh, redirecting our focus from one objective to another very quickly, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So um, when the stakes are low, it's probably something that you can get away with. So if you're talking on the phone, you can rake leaves in the backyard, no problem. But if you're driving along and trying to navigate uh, your GPS and also uh, drive the physical vehicle down the street, that's sometimes when we can get into accidents. Even if we're talking on the phone, our eyes are on the road, but we're into a heated phone call and we're trying to drive, our performance ability behind the wheel is diminished because our cognitive function is dispersed between the phone call and the uh, operating of the vehicle. So watch out for multitasking. That'll get you. Okay, I think you get the message here. I've hit it pretty hard. Um, The fun part is to think uh, if we can make breakthroughs in these areas and realize this constrained model of energy expenditure and how it works, uh, it kind of takes the pressure off from thinking that, you know, we can't fall behind, that we have to hit all these to-do list items every single day in order to feel productive. And it's likely that taking more time for rest, for unwinding, restoration, giving yourself a cognitive break and doing things that are more leisure-oriented can help you benefit overall and be more productive. There's a study from New Zealand, I think this is in Primal Connection, showing that uh, people who came back from vacation were uh, vastly more productive in the aftermath of vacation because they had that space and that gap to allow for cognitive refreshment. And what about in sports? Man, this is what gets me super excited Oh my gosh, what if the athletes, the greatest athletes, the world record breakers, tone things down a bit? Could that be the possible path to future uh, record-breaking performances? Phil Maffetone loves to talk about this. He wrote a book called 159 
talking about the quest for the uh, incredible magical barrier of uh, two hours in the marathon. And we've been slowly creeping toward that. Um, the marathon record was 208 set in 1968. And that thing held for, I don't know, a long time, like 10 or 15 years. Um, then it started to slowly creep down. And now these guys are banging out 202 marathons. Unbelievable. 202, 203 is the existing record. So we're getting close. Uh, but Maffetone argues that the breakthrough in the marathon will happen when um, the current elite athletes perhaps run fewer miles and do less intensity than today's guys because they're hitting the very upper limit of the human ability to train at you know 130, 140 miles a week, plenty of fast stuff in there, just killing themselves. Uh, a lot of them get injured and fall apart and have shorter careers because it's so hard to exist at that highest level. So Maffetone argues that if breakthroughs were made where the athletes learned how to rest and recover better, uh, what if they improved their running economy, their form, their efficiency, uh, maybe some complementary movement and mobility exercises as detailed in the Primal Endurance book? Yeah, what if they got better at sleep? What if they went into the now uh, wildly popular flotation tanks and maybe someday we'll have drug intervention because we love doping so much in elite sports where what if you uh, train, train, train for a five-day period or a 10-day period and then got into a medically induced coma and they stuck you in a flotation salt tank for like 70 hours straight so you could just totally recover and absorb all that training. But having these gaps in the application of stress to devote to uh, door number three Maybe that is the portal to uh, the future greatest performances of the athletes. Uh, one thing that I love about Usain Bolt and the example that he said is that kind of freewheeling, relaxed, casual attitude where he's having fun down there in the competitive arena rather than taking himself too seriously and having that stress impact of uh, just feeling the weight of the, uh, the occasion, the Olympic Games. He's out there smiling and mugging for the camera. And then interestingly, in his autobiography, he uh, explains how he is, quote unquote, lazy in training and his coach has to ride him and he wants to quit and he takes too long in the off season and he pictures or projects himself as this guy who's not uh, at the highest level of dedication and motivation. But wait a second, he's the fastest human that has ever walked on the planet Earth and his performances are, you know, transformational. We may not see his equal in the next century. It's, it's absolutely stunning what we've seen in front of our eyes with him uh, repeatedly uh, winning the Olympics and peaking for world championships, Olympic games. Very, very tough sport. Very tough to stay on top for so long. No one's ever come close to uh, his level of domination, but he's lazy in training. So what doesn't fit there with that picture? What I'm getting at is perhaps he's on to something. Perhaps the uh, classic uh, world-class sprinter or world, world-class world athlete in uh, many other sports have been training too hard as a rule and a routine over all this time, and he's accessed this portal of peak performance where he's more intuitive, more emotional. He's not a regimented robot. It's sort of like Rocky Balboa against Drago, where he's fueled by the love of, of Adrian and the passion and Burgess Meredith coming out of retirement to coach him in the corner uh, and going up against the, uh, the, the, the Soviet Empire robot who's everything's happening in a laboratory for him and he doesn't have any free will or that, uh, that 
you know, competitive spirit that's allowed to come out uh, when you have the uh, the more uh, stable and uh, sensible, balanced lifestyle. Okay, so you get what I'm getting at is that for all of us, we can reflect a little better on uh, dedicating more of our lives to recovery, restoration, rejuvenation, toning down our penchant for hyperconnectivity, for doing just a little bit more, thinking that's the path to get ahead. Sometimes less is more, especially for fitness pursuits. And it's so obvious, and we have so many lessons that we can learn just from looking back into our history. If you keep a training log, go back and find out every time you caught a cold, what precipitated the cold. And usually it was um, not enough sleep, too much sugar, too much exercise without enough rest. Same with an injury. How do you get injured? You repeatedly over and over uh, abuse an area that's already giving off pain signals until finally uh, it turns into something serious. So if we can kind of correct some of those behaviors, relax a little bit, realize that recovery debt is the number one enemy, not just for athletes, but for everyone, for the busy soccer mom who's going to make a mistake one day because she's overstretched and crash the car, and then it's going to cause more time and energy and frustration having to go take it in and make an appointment and making your life more complicated, more stressful because you were pushing too hard in the first place. So relax a little bit. Hopefully you uh, appreciate this perspective. can go look deeper, look at the Hadza study, look at Joel Jameson's article, uh, look at the Mark Stingley Apple post, and keep this in your front of your mind. The recovery is of primary importance. When in doubt, chill out. And I want to leave you with this quote that uh, uh, caught my eye from the Atlanta Falcons all-pro wide receiver, one of the most phenomenal athletes in the world of professional sports. His name is Julio Jones. Fabulous player. He's been dominating in the league for five or six years now. And this was an article about how he's going kind of primal, uh, and natural with his eating habits, but they also asked him about his off-season training regimen. And he said, quote, I don't have an off-season workout regimen. I don't lift weights. I don't run. I don't do anything. I let my body rest. I just eat good. I actually eat great. So if you want to dismiss this and just see this guy, you can look him up, Google him. He's got a pretty impressive physique and athletic performance. Oh, he's just a genetic freak. He can rest and, re- and, and do nothing and still come back and dominate uh, because he's got lucky genes. Well, that may be so, and he may be getting the uh, maximum out of his genetic gifts because he has the sensibility to not push himself so hard all year round. These guys work pretty hard during the season. Uh, I have Isaac Rochelle, the uh, rookie defensive lineman for the San Diego Chargers. He's part of the Keto Reset uh, mastery course material had a great interview with him talking about what he's done. He went keto to kickstart his NFL career and elevate his position in the draft by reworking his body uh, to get more lean and quick and explosive thanks to dietary transformation. But anyway, he was describing the NFL players' daily uh, regimen and they work hard. They have no downtime. It's really tough and possibly the highest level of peak performance can be expressed in the major sports by taking this downtime in the off-season and not worrying about being a workout freak because that's what they are for the other nine or ten months of the year. We're already seeing this in the NBA because these guys grind probably harder than almost any other athlete because they have that that explosiveness, that uh, demand for um, uh, 
high intensity performance as well as the endurance component where they're running up and down the court and pretty much putting in a five mile run and the extended season where the good teams are playing 100 games every single year when you count the playoffs. It's really rough. And now we're finally seeing a glimpse of where the stars are getting rested uh, at times during the season for no reason other than uh, it's an appropriate time to rest because we can't ask these guys to you know, be driven like uh, working mules when really they're magnificent thoroughbred racehorses that require a lot of rest and recovery. And instead, because we haven't really respected this enough, we see guys getting injured, we see guys going out of the league in four and a half years rather than nine, and these are all things where the forward-thinking uh, team organizers are going to realize that you can't have your guy out there every single night just because the uh, the stands are full and you're in a city that's demanding to see their favorite player. It's just going to have to be putting more emphasis on the playoffs and the championships because if one team does it and... San Antonio Spurs, Popovich was famous for doing this, just pulling his top guys and uh, absorbing the fine by the league rather than having play uh, their third road game in four nights. So if people are starting to do that, this is where we're headed. And on a personal individual level, hopefully this is where you're headed too. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Have a great day. Hi, it's Brad Kearns to tell you about Paleo Cooking Boot Camp. Oh, what fun. Finally, you have a chance to learn from a real professional about intentional cooking, where you maximize the efficiency of your time, dedicate two hours on the weekend to cooking, and Chef Katie French, the earthivore, will take you through this incredible whirlwind cooking session where you cook enough in two hours to have ready-made delicious paleo approved meals for the entire week paleocookingbootcamp.com this is a digital version of her award-winning course that was given to students live in the bay area and now wherever you are whatever you're doing you can have a step-by-step approach that makes it easy to succeed in the kitchen even if you're not a big foodie even if you're a little intimidated about doing recipes just push the play button and Katie will take you through the cooking course. It's a two-hour boot camp every weekend designed to last for a month and you will be dialed with your paleo meals. Just open up that refrigerator door. Imagine having all these delicious snacks and breakfast items, dinner entrees, dessert treats even. And let me tell you, I was on the set watching this whole production. It is the real deal. The food is absolutely amazing and you will be surprised what you can accomplish in the kitchen with an intentional cooking method. There's no other course like this found in the world. We looked, believe me. So check out paleocookingbootcamp.com and enroll today.